Okay, good evening. We're going to get started. Thank you all for your patience. Nice to see everybody. Thanks for coming out. Okay, uh, so uh, today, as uh, most of you know, is the second day of Rosh Chodesh ER, which in the Hebrew calendar means that today is the first of the month of ER. And uh, actually, in several moments, we're going to transition into the second of ER. But tomorrow night, Tuesday night in Israel, as the third of ER is beginning, is when Yom HaZikaron, Israel's Memorial Day for Fallen Soldiers, talk a little bit more about that, commences. And uh, it starts with a siren at 8 p.m. tomorrow night in Israel. And it's a sad day, a day of reflection. On uh, Tuesday, another siren goes off. And then Tuesday night, as they transition into the following day, Yom HaTzmut, of course, everything becomes all festive on the 4th of ER. Now, some of you are uh, no doubt raising your eyebrows because... What is the actual Hebrew anniversary, the Hebrew date of Israel's independence? It's the 5th of ER. The 5th of ER is actually Yom HaAtzmut, Israel Independence Day. But this year, it's being celebrated on the 4th of ER, right? So Yom HaZikaron is always back-to-back to Yom HaAtzmut. You go from realizing the sacrifice that it took to create a Jewish state into celebrating the Jewish state. So they're always together. And so even though, so technically, Yom HaAtzmut should have fallen out on Friday, but why is it moved a day early? Anybody have any idea why Yom HaTzmut has moved a day early? Well, it really would have been Thursday night into Friday. Exactly. Or, in addition, and? The government was brought down one year because there was an air show that went into Shabbos and it caused a cloud. Good. So, so when, the, when the laws were instituted uh, that relate to these uh, civil holidays in Israel, Yom Ha'atzmut, Yom Zikaron, Yom Rushalayim, and others, the way it was enacted was that none of these legal holidays should in any way interfere with properly keeping Shabbos or Jewish holidays according to Halacha. Therefore, if Yom Ha'atzmut were to be celebrated on the day that it should be celebrated this year, which is Friday, then it's very likely that the celebrations that will continue through Friday afternoon will, will result in people either not getting home in time for Shabbos or working too late and working on Shabbos. And so therefore, the way the law was enacted to institute Yom HaTzmaut and Yom HaZikaron was that if it ever falls out on a Friday, Yom HaTzmaut, like this year, it's moved to Thursday. And therefore, Yom HaZikaron is moved back as well. So that's why this, week, this year it's Tuesday night into Wednesday is Yom HaZikaron. Wednesday night into Thursday is Yom HaTzmaut, even though technically... Um, it should really be Thursday, Friday. So, so that. What the dates that they fall out on? Yeah. No, one one has nothing to do with the other. You just don't say how and those are religious questions. You can uh, bring them up to the rabbi. You know. Yeah. We talk about that afterwards. Yeah. Um, okay. So it's actually very interesting, just an interesting uh, piece of trivia on, in, uh, on the Jewish calendar, is that the 5th of ER only ever falls out on... The 5th of ER only ever falls out on Mondays, Wednesdays, Fridays, or Shabbos. That's just the way the Jewish calendar falls out, which means that it almost... It is very rare, rare that Yom Ha'atzmaut is celebrated on the 5th of ER, because if it falls out on a Friday, it's moved to Thursday. Right, if it falls out on a Shabbos, also it's moved. If it falls out on a, if it falls out on a uh, on a Monday because it's preceded by Yom Hazikaron always. So we're nervous that Yom Hazikaron preparation will begin Saturday night. So it's always either pushed back or pushed forward unless it falls on a Wednesday, which is not such a common thing. So 
so it happens uh, more often than not. It's not actually on the on the fifth. And now the irony of that, of course, is that Yom Atzmaut on the year that Israel was declared as a state fell out on a Friday, right? But we never ever in modern times ever celebrate Yom Atzmaut on a Friday. It just doesn't doesn't that ever happen? Okay, now, uh, so initially Yom HaZikaron, when it was established in the uh, 1950s, it was established to be a memorial day for soldiers who had, and those who had fought to, uh, to uh, ensure that the, there can be a safe Jewish presence in the land of Israel. But later on in the late 90s, they added on that not only is it for soldiers, but it's also for victims of terror, for civilians who were also murdered um, during this tragic uh, uh, more than a century-long uh, struggle for Jews to be able to live in Eretz Israel, starting in the late 1800s. So it was added to also to also recognize um, civilians as well. And tragically, uh, you know, Yom Hazikaron is remembering more than 24,000 soldiers and civilians who have been killed since that time period. And unfortunately, just in the past 48 hours, that number has unfortunately uh, risen as well by by um, by four. So, so that's uh, that's a story with uh, with the date. So, now it's interesting that what I just said is that celebrating Yom Hazikaron is a very modern thing. It's from the 1950s, right? But I'd like to share with you an interesting source. It's a little bit off topic, which uh, which leads us to believe that it's possible that actually the Omer period that we're in might actually be very uh, linked, very strongly, to mourning loss of soldiers. There's a, uh, as, as all of you know, the, the Omer, right, one of the, the most famous sources, if you say to somebody, why do we mourn during the Omer? So the Gemara in Yavamo says that Rabbi Akiva had 12,000 pairs of students, and during this time period, between Pesach and Shavuos, uh, they died from a plague. Right? They died from a plague. That's what the Gemara says. Now, uh, so what's the story of, of that time period? So those of you who are familiar with the, uh, with the time period of Rabbi Akiva and his students know that what was happening during Rabbi Akiva's time was that there was a major, major uh, revolt of the Jews against the Romans. Of course, the second temple, the second base of Mikdash was destroyed in the year 70 of the Common Era. It was a horrible tragedy. It was a multi-year revolt of uh, the Jews against the Romans. It ended with the Jews... Um, many, many, many hundreds of thousands of Jews being killed and the Beis HaMikdash being destroyed. Less than 50 years later, there was another major revolt of the Jews against the Romans, a revolt we don't know that much about called the Ketos Wars, which by many historical estimates, the Jews succeeded in massacring huge numbers of Roman soldiers, huge numbers, but eventually that was also put down. And then, not too long after that, in the year 132, was the last of the great revolts of the Jews against the Romans, the last time, up until 1948, that there was any independence of any uh, Jewish entity in the land of Israel, and that was the Bar Kokhva Revolt. Shimon Bar Kokhva launched a revolt of the, uh, of, uh, against, the, against the Romans, and uh, based in the city of Betar, just south of Yerushalayim, and he succeeded for several years in giving the Roman army, which was the most powerful army of the time, it, had, it was running campaigns all the way as far north as Britain and all over the world, giving them a really, really, really challenging time. It is said that a full one quarter of the Roman military had to be diverted to try to put down the revolt of the Jews in, uh, in, the, in the land of Israel. And eventually, in around the year 135, the revolt was put down Historical uh, re uh, records from that time say that more than half a million Jews were killed. Many, many, many more were sent into captivity. And it was a very, very, very challenging time 
a very challenging time. And what we're taught, what our, uh, what our traditional sources tell us, the Gemara tells us that the, the bodies of Bar Kokhva's fighters and the other Jews living in Betar, right, the Romans uh, enacted a whole bunch of horrible draconian decrees against the Jews, but one of them is that the bodies of those who were killed in Betar could not be brought to burial and, uh, for a while. And uh, eventually the Romans dropped, uh, dropped that decree. There was a new emperor in place, and the, uh, and the bodies were allowed to be brought to burial. And when they came to bury these bodies... They saw that the bodies had not decomposed miraculously. The bodies had not decomposed despite being outdoors for so long, and they buried these bodies. And the sages instituted at that time the fourth blessing of benching, of Berkat HaMazon, of the blessing of Atov HaMetiv, right? To, to uh, thank Hashem for, number one, allowing these bodies to be brought to burial, and number two, for the miracle that these bodies didn't compose uh, during all those years. Actually, uh, interestingly, just a few weeks ago, those of you who are following current events know that after many decades of being held in captivity, the body of an Israeli soldier, Zachary Baumol, who was held, whose body was located in Syria, through a series of events which seemed to still be uh, classified, they were able to bring his body home uh, many, many years after he was taken in a, in a, in a battle in Lebanon. And when his sister met the Prime Minister, Bibi Netanyahu, in his office, when he officially welcomed his family, so his sister said, referenced the story of the, uh, those who were murdered in Betar, and said that that's when the bracha of Atova HaMetiv was enacted, and she said, now is our family's turn to say the bracha of Atova HaMetiv, because in modern times, we get to bury our brother. So uh, that's a story of, of that. Now, so again, the Jews put up a very rough fight against the Romans. In fact, uh, um, history shows that the Roman Emperor Hadrian, who was the one who put down this revolt, typically the, I'm sorry, he was the general, I believe at the time, typically he would write to the Roman Senate when he would report on a successful campaign. He says, I and the army are in health, and for this particular campaign he didn't do it, because in, in vast numbers of Roman soldiers were killed, but of course the Jewish, uh, the Jewish revolt uh, was put down. So... Remember we said that if you look at any, any, anybody who writes about the Omar that says that these 24,000 students of Rabbi Akiva died in a plague? So one thing we know about Bar Kokhva is that Rabbi Akiva was the, a very, very strong uh, uh, per, believer at, initially in the Bar Kokhva, in the Bar Kokhva revolt. It is said that he at one point held that Bar, Kokh, Bar Kokhva was Mashiach or could have been Mashiach. Obviously he wasn't, and he showed that he wasn't by his, some, some actions that he took later in the campaign. And so it stands to reason that perhaps some of Rabbi Akiva's students right, might have been involved in the, in the, in the Bar Kokhva revolt. Now, what's interesting is that Rabbi Sh- the Igeres Reb Shuragon is a letter written by one of the Geonim. Right? Around the year, the 8th, 9th century, there was a group of rabbis in Babylonia above all called the Geonim. Rabbi Shuragon Gaon wrote a long history of, uh, of Jewish history of his time for future. And one of the things he writes is that the students of Rabbi Akiva, he doesn't say that they died in a plague. He said they died in Shemad, which is religious persecution. That they were killed, see, I mean, it has to be by the Romans during a time of religious persecutions. And there are some um, rabbis of the 20th century, one of them was uh, Rabbi Henkin, uh, who was a major rabbi in the Lower East Side of New York at the beginning of the 20th century. He was of the belief that the students of Rabbi Akiva were actually soldiers in the Bar Kokhva revolt, and they were killed fighting in the Bar Kokhva revolt, and for whatever reason in the Gemara they obscure 
the real the real re way that they were killed. Maybe they don't want to glorify the fact that Jews were revolting against the, against an uh, occupying power at the time of the Gemara being written. But Rav Henkin and others, based on Rav Shri Ragon, are of the opinion that the students of Rabbi Kiva that were mourning now today uh, actually were killed. So perhaps this notion of Yom Hazikaron of mourning soldiers who have died in battle might be an ancient one. It might be that during this time period is really a longer period of memorial. Okay. So, but talking about soldiers nowadays. So, so soldiers, civilians, people who are killed, but because they're Jews, we know they're considered holy. There, there's a holiness in the fact that they died the way that they died, right? Because they died sanctifying the name of God. In fact, there's a story told about uh, Rabbi Shlomo Zalman Orbach, who, uh, who had a yeshiva in uh, Jerusalem called Kol Torah in Bait Began, where uh, the Feldmans who are, are here live. But there, was, there is a yeshiva Kol Torah, um, and uh, he would frequently um, drive to the yeshiva, and right outside of Bait Vagan, the neighborhood in Jerusalem, is the, the equivalent of Arlington Cemetery, right? The cemetery where all the soldiers are buried in, uh, in Jerusalem. And, uh, and his driver, who published a, a book after his death, recording various conversations he had with him while he drove, writes that when Rabbi Shlomo Zaman Orbach would drive past the Herzl Cemetery where the soldiers are buried, he would say that he doesn't understand. First, he would say they are all holy because of the way they died, because they were targeted for being Jews. But he would also say he doesn't understand why people go out of their way to travel vast distances to find a grave of a, of a great tzaddik from, uh, from, from back in time, from history, when in Jerusalem there's a mountain full of people who died sanctifying the name of God, and presumably there's also a great benefit to, uh, to pray there. That's what he would say. That's what Rabbi Shlomo Zalman Orbach would say. That's what his driver reports that we know, right? But not only a lot of the people who, who died, whether soldiers or civilians, not only in their death, did they become holy people? But a lot of them lived holy lives. Some of them didn't, of course. Some of them did. Over the past few years on Yom Hazikaron, we've talked about some who did. I know several years back, Rabbi Foxbrunner talked about um, David Applebaum, Dr. David Applebaum, who was tragically killed in a suicide bombing in Jerusalem the night before his daughter's wedding. Um, and he's somebody who apparently frequently visited Atlanta. And I was just this past Shabbos, I happened to be talking to um, a member of the Merlis family who was, remembering, and who was remembering that he used to stay with the Merlises when he would come to Atlanta, and he was always, every time he would visit, he would be very, he would be very careful not to eat um, food. He would be very careful to keep yashan, not to, eat, not to eat, which is an extra level of stringency, and he would make sure that the Merlises go out of their way to, to, to buy the, uh, the necessary uh, grain products that comply with that stringency. So Dr. Applebaum was a Torah scholar. He was a person who lived a holy life, died in a in a way that, of course, he was uh, made him that he was holy as well. So today we're going to talk about a soldier who was killed in 2014, who also lived a holy life. Okay, before we talk about him a little bit, I just wanted to show you a, a brief clip, two and a half minutes, um, which was actually put out by the uh, American Jewish Committee, two and a half minutes about Hadar Golden, who's the person we're going to talk about tonight. The reason that there's so much focus on Hadar Golden and that an American Jewish organization would make a video about him, even though, as we said, tragically, there are many thousands of uh, soldiers and civilians who have been killed, is because Hadar Golden's, most of his remains are actually in Gaza right now, as we speak. We're going to talk a little bit about, about that. Um, but um, that is, that is uh, the reason. So let me just show um, this brief clip. It's only, it's only two minutes. Thank <laughs> you. 
So, that video gives you a little perspective, and just to add a little bit more of an understanding of who he was, I'm going to fast forward a little bit to um, his post-high school years. After high school, instead of enlisting directly into IDF, Hadar Golden um, decided to, to join a Mechina. The Mechina program is a pre-army program, um, which where young men study Torah for a year, sometimes two years, before enlisting in some of the most elite units in the IDF. There are other programs, some of you may have heard of Hezder Yeshivas, which combine army service and Torah learning. Um, young men who join those programs, soldiers who join those programs, um, are not in the most elite units of the IDF. They're in combat units and not in the most elite units. But Mechina students, especially like Hadar, who wanted to go to the most elite units, and they, they, they wouldn't be allowed to do so in the Hezder framework, they go to a, a, a Mechina. In this case, in the case of Hadar, he went to uh, one of the most prestigious mechina in Israel. It's in a town called Eli, north of Jerusalem in Shomron. There's a town called Eli, and there's a mechina there, which is actually extremely rigorous. Often uh, mechinas are not as rigorous as, as full-blown yeshivas, but the one in Eli actually is, uh, has a reputation for being a very, very rigorous uh, program in Torah study. Um, and, uh, and they also learn, obviously, leadership, and they get prepared for, for serving the army. One of the most famous graduates of the Eli Mechina, where Hadar learned, um, was um, a, a major hero of the Second Lebanon War, named Roe Klein. 
Roe Klein was an officer who, in, in Lebanon, during a battle, famously saw a grenade being hurled at his men, screamed Shema Yisrael, and jumped on the grenade, right? Which is a modern-day hero, which is unbelievable, you know, what he did. And we could, you know, one year we'll talk about Roe Klein. There's a whole thing to talk about Roe Klein, who actually taught at the Mechina in Eli. But uh, Hadar, studied, Hadar studied in the Mechina there as well, and as, as it said in the, in the video, he was actually involved. Um, he enlisted in the IDF into a, uh, there's a unit in the IDF called the Givati Brigade. Every brigade in the IDF, the way it works is that there's a, a special forces reconnaissance unit that is part of the brigade. It's a group of highly trained soldiers who are, who, are, who are like the tip of the spear for every brigade. Every single brigade has it. The tanks have them, every unit has it. So Givati, which operates in the Gaza area, has this reconnaissance brigade, which Hadar got into. It's a commando unit um, that he was, he was part of. They were the tip, uh, tip of the spear um, uh, in Gaza. And so, uh, so what happened in, in August of 2014, when he was there, which is a story behind how he got killed, was that there was a humanitarian ceasefire, as it said, and they were in the southernmost part of Gaza. There's a, a city, uh, which in Hebrew is known as Rafiach, <coughs> southernmost, right on the Gaza-Egyptian border. And as humanitarian ceasefire, they had been fighting for a very long time. They were taking advantage. Some of the, some of the unit was sleeping. Some of it was um, on patrol. And Hadar was with the commander of his unit. His name was um, um, Ben Ayasarel, who was uh, from Kirat Arba, actually from Hebron. The commander of this commando, this Givati commando unit, the reconnaissance unit, uh, he was with him and the communications guy. And um, a, unclear exactly what happened, but wherever they were, an explosion was set off. And simultaneously, they were getting shot at. And, and um, immediately, his friends from his unit came out to engage, the sol- to engage the enemy. They come, they find, they knew that there were three soldiers on patrol. They see the commander of the entire unit um, killed. They see the communications guy killed, and they see another IDF soldier on the ground, and they assume that it's Hadar. Until they look at the body and they realize it was the terrorist who had put on IDF uniform, and Hadar was not there. And so the deputy commander of this unit, of this, of this uh, special forces unit, his name was Eitan Fund. He was actually an American Israeli from Efrat, um, from an American family. The deputy commander goes into the building where the terrorists had come out of with some of his men, and he sees that there's a tunnel that leads, that leads underground. And he knows that if Hadar had been successfully kidnapped, and Israel is facing a horrible, horrible disaster, as we know from, uh, from other situations where soldiers have been kidnapped, and Israel is forced to release thousands of bodies in return. And he starts going, he goes into the tunnel. He gets permission to go into the tunnel. Um, Eitan Fund goes into the tunnel. The tunnel starts crumbling on him. And he goes out he, and, and he does something which puts him down as one of the greatest heroes of, of the modern Israeli army. He, get, he takes off his, all of his protective gear, takes off his gun, only takes a handgun, and crawls into the tunnel as it's crumbling and says to the third in command, remember the first in command of the unit had already been killed, says to the third in command, if I'm not back in five minutes, you should assume that I'm dead. And so Eitan Fund crawls, crawls in just with a handgun and, and, he, and, he, and he just starts running through a dark labyrinth of tunnels, passes explosives, and on the way he finds, he sees, he sees blood and he sees other body mass clearly, and he sees pieces of equipment, 
and he runs, he's running, he only emerges after 10 minutes. He said, if, if I'm in for five minutes, assume I'm dead. Emerges after 10 minutes, somehow he navigated everything, and he, with his hands, took whatever he could get, comes out of the tunnel, they pull out of Rafiach, the unit pulls out of Rafiach, and then what happened next is extremely controversial because the IDF did something that they claimed on paper that they never, ever, ever do, and it's called the Hannibal Directive. It's very controversial, but there's a secretive, uh, secretive command in the IDF that if anybody, that if anybody um, is ever taken captive, that they do whatever it takes to ensure that that person is not taken alive, including potentially killing the soldier who's being taken captive. So what happened next is that the IDF brought in, brought in artillery and helicopters and blew up everything that moved in that area. 70 Palestinians were killed. Unclear whether or not Hadar, where Hadar was in the whole mess, but the family, this is on a Shabbos. Remember, this all happened on a Friday. Over the course of Shabbos, the family doesn't know what's going on. Is their son alive? Is he dead? Is he being held captive or not? And uh, Eitan Fund, who gives over everything he gathered in this tunnel to the IDF rabbinate, um, goes actually directly to Hadar's family, where he sits with them. And the chief, of the, the chief rabbi of the IDF, his name is Rafi Peretz, who actually just got elected to the Knesset. Uh, now he's the chairman of the Bayit HaYehudi party. He was the chief rabbi of the IDF and a former, a former helicopter pilot, actually. Um, he immediately gathers a committee of rabbis and pathologists to look over the matter, that, the stuff that was taken out of the, out of the tunnel to determine whether or not Hadar Golden is halakhically considered to be alive or dead. And to the surprise, the family was sure that he was alive. But less than uh, 36 hours after this battle, um, Rabbi Rafi Peretz shows up with the family and says that based on his uh, determination, talking to professionals and with rabbis, the type of, of unclear if there were actual limbs or blood or whatever it is, he said, though he said that it has the halakhic equivalent of what's called the avar shanashama tuluyabo, that there's no way that a living person right, could be missing all of this, whatever it was that they had, and therefore halakhically he is considered dead. And so the family um, actually held a funeral to bury whatever they had, and over 15,000 people came to the funeral. But they were able to bury and, and to have at least closure knowing that halakhically and also the professionals determined that their son is no longer living. But the fact remains that it seems that the majority of Hadar's body is right now somewhere in Gaza. Now, as tragic as that sounds, an even worse scenario is another, another family of a soldier named Oron Shaul, who was killed two weeks later, who the IDF rabbinate has not been able to, uh, there, was, there was nothing that they were able to retrieve to allow the family to bury. And so his body still remains in Gaza and they've never had a funeral for Aron Shaul. But these are the two. Hadar and Aron are considered the two bodies that are held in Gaza and um, it's a violation of international law, obviously. And Hamas is waiting to use them as bargaining chips um, uh, for Israel one day. So that's a story of Hadar. Hadar Golden, an incredible, incredible hero. But in addition to being a hero and a tremendous soldier and a member of, a, of a, one of the best uh, commando units um, on the face of the earth, Hadar Golden was also an extremely thoughtful and uh, devout person. And what we're going to talk about today is uh, a book which emerged from 
uh, actually what Eitan Fund, remember he was the guy who ran into the tunnel, who had been Hadar's friend from a long t- for a long time. When Eitan Fund got to the parents' house, one of the things he told Hadar's parents, he said that every time I saw Hadar, he was learning Mesilat Yasharim, Mesilat Yasharim, Path of the Just, and Musar Sefer. Every time, if he would have a break in the army, he'd be learning Mesilat Yasharim. If we were going somewhere and we had time on the bus, he'd be learning Mesilat Yasharim. And so his, his, he, had a, he has a twin brother, Tzur, who was in the video. His brother found the copy of Mesilat Yasharim, actually, and brought it to the parents. And after they mourned and they took time to process the tragedy, Hadar's father, who's actually a professor, um, took time out, took a break from his, from his career, went to the yeshiva where Hadar had learned, gathered his friends, and with them went through page after page of, of, um, of Hadar's actual copy of Masih al-Sasharim. And just to give you an example of how, how, how much he wrote, if you look at this uh, source sheet, which you have, um, so actually, uh, before we get to the source sheet, if you look at the first source, um, the first source is a Gemara Nevomos that says that with Torah scholars, when a teaching is said in their name in this world, their lips mouth the words in the grave. Okay? So any learning that we do, first of all, should be a merit for the safety of the Jewish people in Israel, of course. But keep in mind that based on this Gemara, Hadar's lips are moving as we learn his Torah. Um, and the same is true, of course, with any, any Torah scholar. But if you look at the photo just below, which is actually a photo I took um, from, from this copy that the family uh, put out, that's an actual image of Hadar's own Mesil Asisharim with his notes in the margins. And that's just one representative page. I mean, every page was like this, at least of the first half of the book. And we'll talk about why only the, fir- the first half. So he wrote a tremendous amount of notes. Some of the notes were from classes he attended. Some of the notes were his personal reflections. As a, as a young man becoming an adult, he wrote some of his own notes to himself. Uh, and so this book, which the family published, um, it's called a, a Chavruta, Learning Together with Hadar Golden. This is actually artwork that Hadar himself made. Um, he was an artist as well. Uh, takes, deciphers his notes, and they published uh, his notes and some of his reflections. So, so let's jump right into it and learn some of the some of what he uh, some of his reflections uh, in his memory um, tonight. So, Mesil Sisharim was written by Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lozado. He lived in the uh, beginning of the 18th century, and um, and he, in addition to the mystical and kabbalistic works that he created that he wrote, he famously wrote this Mesil Sisharim, which is a, a classic central Musar text. It is said about the uh, Vilna Gaon, um, it is said that he testified that, I think he said the first 12 chapters of Mesil Sisharim does not contain an extra letter, or maybe an extra word, whatever it is that the Vilna Gaon is vouching for the fact that the precision of language and giving over concepts is, is unbelievable and unsurpassed. And so let's start with the, uh, um, the beginning. If you look at the first source, source number three. Okay, source number three is uh, from the introduction of Mesil Sisharim. So, so we're going to skip down five or six lines, and uh, the introduction of Mesil Sisharim says that the author, Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lozado, says that he was going to model, he was going to model this book, build it off of a brisa. A brisa is a Mishnaic era text, and the brisa um, is written, uh, authored by. Rabbi Pinchas ben Ya'ir. Rabbi Pinchas ben Ya'ir taught that Torah brings a person to watchfulness. Watchfulness brings a person to zeal. Zeal brings a person to cleanliness. Cleanliness brings a person to separation. Separation to humility. 
No, I'm sorry, to purity. Purity to piety, piety to humility, humility to fear of sin, fear of sin to holiness, holiness to the to Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, and Ruach HaKodesh to Tchias Mason. And so the author of Mesilas Hashem says, I'm going to build, right, presumably this is building up from one to whatever the number is here. Um, and we're going, I'm going to help you build a edifice, a building of spiritual growth from Torah all the way up to Tchias Mason. And that's how the chapters are, are laid out. And Mesilas Hashem is very organized um, based, based on this. And that's the, uh, the basis. The basis for, for all of this. So one of the notes, um, and what's interesting is that, um, and, and Hadar's father writes this, is that Hadar felt that the first 12 chapters, um, which are much more concrete, um, um, were what he had to work on up until, up until he got married. And that's why his notes are almost exclusively on the first 12 or 13 chapters. And the remaining chapters he almost had nothing on because he didn't get there yet. Okay? And so he was very systematic about in understanding and, and living the, the cha- each chapter and then building on, on the next one. So he actually has an interesting note here on this, this Rabbi Pinchas ben Yair. He was this uh, great, great scholar. And he brought out this idea that you have one thing leads to this, this domino effect of spirituality. And so one of the things that Hadar quotes from one of his, one of his rabbis, he quotes, who was, he says, who was Rabbi Pinchas ben Yair? Rabbi Pinchas ben Yair, uh, there's a, a series of, of uh, uh, Gemaras that talk about him. He was a very interesting personality. His animals kept the Torah, were taught in the Gemara, that they, uh, they, were, care- they were careful to keep his, even his animals were careful about things. But the, uh, the Gemara, when it talks about him, it, it tells us a story that Rabbi Pinchas ben Yair was one time on his way to redeem captives. He was on his way to redeem captives, and there was a river that was, that was blocking his way, and he and the river had an argument. And at the end of the day, he commanded the river to stop so that he can go and redeem the captives. And so the, uh, the Maharal, and Hadar writes this in his notes, the Maharal writes that Rabbi Pinchas ben Yair, was the, he was the man who used to go around redeeming captives, apparently. He wrote this b'risa, showing a person how you can be released from the shackles and the captivity of the Yetzirah, right? From the inclination to do the wrong thing. Of course, there are physical captives who have to get out of jail, but everybody in their own way is in captivity. And so Rabbi Pinchas ben Yair specialized in getting people out of captivity, and that's why he authored that b'risa. And the Masil Sisharim um, is built off of that. It's a guide to how a person can pull himself out of spiritual captivity as well, right? And he was the Pinchas, the son of Yair, the son of... He, he brought... Yair means uh, light, to bring light. He brought light um, into, the, into the world. In fact, uh, anybody who's been to Tzfat... Um, at the bottom of the old cemetery of Sfat is actually uh, where he's buried. Okay, so that was uh, source number three. Let's jump uh, straight into the, uh, to the next uh, sources. Sources four and five, uh, which are also part of the introduction of Masil Sasharim. So uh, he writes, he says, I'm not going to teach you anything new. Now you look at source four. I have composed this work not to teach people what they do not know, but to remind them of what they already know and what is, and what is very familiar to them. For you will find in most of my words only things which most people already know and do not have any doubt about. So what's the point? Why am I writing a book if you already know everything? That according to source five, according to their familiarity and the extent that their truth is evident to all, so too is their neglect prevalent and forgetfulness um, very great. And therefore, benefit from this book is not to be gleaned from a single reading, uh, it's possible you'll learn very little, but it's derived from review and diligent study, and only through that you'll be reminded of these things, which people, by na- their very nature, tend tend uh, to forget. So, 
So on this, Hadar writes, he says, he says, how do people forget things that they know intellectually, right? How is that about some things we know and we remember constantly. Some things we know, but it takes us, we have to retrieve it from the back of our minds, right? So what, what, what is that? What's, what's happening there? So uh, he writes, and this is our, these are his own words, actually. He says, he, he suggests that words, what words are, are a very limited tool to describe something that we know of, right? And so I could describe a chair because it's physically in front of me, but when it comes to describing things which are much more abstract and we don't necessarily, we can't quantify it, um, we have a much harder time using language to communicate it. And so when it comes to matters of the soul, spiritual yearnings, things that relate to the divine, the neshama, we can use a word, but the word in our minds don't, it doesn't actually connect to something which is so abstract. And, um, and, and so if you, don't actually, if you can't actually understand what the word is saying, what the word is really saying, if we don't fully understand what the word is really saying, then it's very hard to make it a part of your core identity. And so what he writes to himself, and this is a reflection for himself, he says, I have to strive to understand what these things are. I can use words like soul and spiritual growth, right, and, and, and personal development, but if I don't know what I'm saying, it's never going to become a part of, of, the, of, the, of my consciousness and my identity. I won't be able to have the will to make changes. So that's, uh, that's what we can uh, pull out of Source 4 and 5. And what I've done here is just taken tiny, tiny excerpts from the first 10 chapters, and I'm just going to share with you what he says um, from, from this. So let's jump to Source 6 and 7. Source 6 and 7. So Source 6, uh, Source 6, is um, uh, it's still part of the uh, the first chapter, which is the broad overview of of a person's obligation in this world. So in source six, he says, uh, "This is what a person has to know: man was not created for this world, right? We really created this world. We know is a it's a hallway to bring us to the to the next world, for the world to come." And right, the mean this his state in this world is a means towards the state in the world to come. And if you look at source seven, he says, therefore, throughout our sages, you will find all kinds of, of parables comparing this world to a time of preparation, a hallway, and the next world is the place of rest. Right? We say this world is like a corridor in Perkeabos. And um, right, there's a uh, the Gemara tells us that a person who toils on Friday, as we all know, if you don't work on Friday, you won't eat on Shabbos. If you don't make your challenge on Friday, you don't put up your hot plate on Friday, or you don't flip, turn on your lights on Friday, you won't be able to enjoy them on Shabbos. And so similarly, this world is like Friday, is like the weekdays, and the next world is going to be is going to be Shabbos. <laughs> similarly, he says this world is like the shore, and the next world is like the sea. This world is like we're on dry land. The next world is uh, we're on the sea. So on this, uh, Hadar says, the idea of the dry land and sea uh, c- uh, comparison, says when a person's on the dry land, right, another dimension of being on dry land is that you can't really see that far on dry land. You have limited visibility. When a person's out in the sea, anybody who's been in, out in open waters knows, you could see vast distances, much further, right? And so, and so wh- while we're on dry land, um, even though we can't see so far, we have to prepare ourselves for being in the ocean. And so what do you do? If you're on dry land, you want to experience the ocean, you have to build a boat. A boat has zero value on dry land. You can't do anything with a boat on dry land. Boats don't have wheels, right? So, um, uh, but you have to do it even though it's not usable, uh, not usable here as well. 
right? But once you get it into the water, that same boat can take you endless, endless distances. And so the, what we're doing in this world is we're building essentially a boat which is going to take us uh, to the ocean, uh, to the ocean. And so Hadar wrote to himself, he, said, he writes to himself these notes, these personal notes, which he never wanted to be publicized and wouldn't have been publicized had he lived. He says that your job right now is to build that boat so that in the next world, you'll be able to, uh, to, to experience those the vast uh, distances. Okay, now the Masih uh, al-Sisharim jumps into the, um, the, uh, the level of Zahirus, watchfulness. And so if you look at Source 8, Source 8 talks about watchfulness, which is one of the initial stages for a person's uh, personal development. It says, the idea of watchfulness is for a person to be cautious of his deeds, and you should contemplate and watch your deeds. And the ways uh, to see whether they are good or evil, and uh, basically live live thoughtfully. Don't live by habit, right? Contemplate, think about what you're doing and why you do it. So, so he he actually he writes that he says he compares it to a uh, two friends who are going two friends who are going on a hike, and uh, along a river. So one of them runs through the trail straight to the end of the trail and he and he loves it um second one uh the second one walks much more slowly and he finally gets to the end of this and uh end of the trail and he says to his friend he said that was a gorgeous trail and his friend says what was gorgeous about it so like, i didn't see anything gorgeous he said uh he said why'd you walk so slowly he's like it's not fun to walk so slowly he said did you see that bird's nest said no did you see the three purple uh the three purple flowers no i didn't notice he said did you see uh uh did you see the rabbit did you see the rock etc right so uh, his friend said no so he says you can't say about the slow friend that he stopped anything he didn't pause his life on the contrary he actually experienced life whereas the person who went very quickly through it didn't even experience the didn't experience the hike so so he says, life is not determined, is not expressed simply by the ability to move, but how you're using uh, the moments that, that, that are yours um, in, in life, experiencing it and enjoying it, etc. So, so being watchful so it doesn't mean going slow for its own sake, but it means being a person who's constantly um, assessing where they're going and uh, what their purpose in life is and drawing as much as possible um, out, of, out of life as well. And so that's a reflection that he wrote wrote for himself and so watchfulness uh, Zahiros he continues um, and he writes um, in source not in source nine the Masil Sisharm says well, I'll jump to um, I'll jump to the part that says yeah so so in that chapter Masil uh, Sisharm describes life like a maze he says all of us are living in a maze and the walls are too high for us to see over and we're constantly trying to get at the end of the maze, the only thing we could see is that at the end of the maze, there's a tower and there's somebody there who made it to the end of the maze. And so we can choose on our own to navigate the maze or we can listen to the people in the tower, right? The people who have managed to go through this whole process of, of personal development. And he says that's Chazal, the great Torah sages who have made it to that, who are telling us how to get through the maze of life and listen to them. We have that choice. We can do that. And so, so in Source 9, it says, he quotes... Uh, what, what is the advice that these people are giving us? They, they're saying, um, let us consider and account this world. Right? They said that the key to making it out of the maze is to being a person who's constantly uh, calculating and taking, uh, 
taking stock of their own life to determine whether or not they're um, they're living uh, consciously. And um, and Hadar writes for himself. He says this means taking a wide, uh, range, constantly asking yourself, where are you now, and where do you want to be? Constantly focusing on the on the end goal. And he says that for him, he says the way he does that to help construct what the end game is, what he wants to be, is through tefillah, through prayer. He says that for himself, tefillah is an opportunity not only to daven to Hashem, but for a person to articulate what it is that are, what are their values, what do they care about, they care, and, and, and it's, it's a way of almost setting that goal, what they're, what they're striving for. That's what he writes for, for himself. Uh, source 10, anybody feel free to stop me if I'm going too fast, but I know we, are, we started late and we're running a little late. Uh, he was 23. This is really profound. It's unbelievable. 23 yeah. year Yes, it is. It's incredible. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, source, source 10. Let's look at source 10. Uh, this is in the um, continuous watchfulness. Also, this is also on the topic of watchfulness. Um, so he says there are two dimensions of reaching this, uh, this uh, position of watchfulness. He says that there's a lofty way of, of reaching this position. Um, person who's scared of, scared of sin, but then the latter part that's actually bolded, he says, those of lesser understanding will be roused to watchfulness according to their perceptions, namely according to the matter of honor that they crave. Right? Through the honor that you crave, you can bring yourself, even though a person is not supposed to pursue honor, honor is not something you should chase after, but that can actually be used, it could be harnessed. And he says, to him, this is very meaningful, that Rabbi Mushchaim Lozado identified the person's pursuit of honor as actually a tool, which is usually bad, but can be harnessed to uh, for, for spiritual growth. And how is that? Um, he says, he says that a person has a person has to tell himself that you are so important, right? You are so important that that um, that if you actually value yourself, then you're capable of all these great things, and. And you're capable of more. You're capable of doing better. If you build yourself up and tell yourself how great you are, that's going to translate itself into spiritual, into spiritual areas as well. And he, he has a very, very interesting insight, something I never thought of, which I'd learned many times. He says that when, the, when, when there's a capital uh, court case being judged in the Sanhedrin and somebody's on trial and potentially going to be put to death, so the judges cross-examine the witnesses. Before they do that, they, they scare them. And they, they tell them, you have to realize that there's a human life at stake here. You're about to testify, and this might affect a person's life. They might be put to death. And he sa- and it says that, and, and one of the things they say that is, that is that Adam, the first man, was created alone, right? To tell you that any future human being that was ever created, if that person is killed, it's as if the entire world was killed, right? And also, so also a person should also tell himself that the world was created for me. The, right, the obverse of that, the flip side of that, is that the world was created for each and every one of us. Each and every one of us the world was created for. And so the way uh, Hadar writes this is that he says, he might have heard this in a class, that the judges are actually telling the witnesses that you are capable of doing better. If you were somehow dragged and manipulated into testifying falsely, the world was created for you. It's not just about the guy who might be put to death, but you yourself have actually a higher value, and you're capable of living a more noble life than, than what you might be if you're if you're testifying falsely. So that's uh, that's source ten. Now let's look at source eleven. 
This is on, um, yeah, so source 11, which is the fifth chapter of Mesilas Yesharim. He says, he says that the, uh, the, the Medrash in Echa says, that Hashem says something very, uh, very surprising. He says that if only the Jewish people had abandoned me, God, God says, if only the Jewish people had abandoned me, but kept the Torah. I wish they would have done that. Abandon, they can abandon me. That's fine. Just keep the Torah. Right? Um, right, because the light within the Torah would bring them back to the good. And so, so he says, included in this, besides for learning Torah, of course, is the fixed daily time for accounting of deeds and correction. And the bolded part, he says, besides all of this, all the free time that a person has left from his affairs... Right? If he's wise, he should not waste it. So for this, he writes a personal note to himself. He writes to himself, this is a beautiful thing. He says, when I'm on guard duty, which he was before he was killed. He says, when I'm on guard duty and I'm sitting long nights and I have nothing to do, right? I could waste my time. He says, or, or, um, or he writes, I could think about, I could take an accounting, take stock of my life. Um, I can think about my own behavior and I could think about my friends and what their needs might be. Uh, he, and he writes a beautiful thing. He says, I could think about my parents and how I can be more creative in honoring them and be there for them and how I could be a better listener to my friends. Oh, beautiful thing. He writes, while I'm on guard duty, this is, these are the things that I could do. And he, pull, he, he, he takes that out of that, that source, source 11. Uh, source 12, which is um, in the sixth chapter of Mesil um which is the part that talks about alacrity, zrizos, that a person should be swift um, in service of God. So in source 12, uh, the Mesil HaSasharim talks about how we are all created from earth, from dirt, which is very, very heavy. The opposite of, of speed, of alacrity, right? And our job in this world is to, um, is, to, is to overcome that. So he says, if a person allows himself to just be heavy, then he, obviously he won't succeed, right? And the Tana, he quotes the, the Mishnah, and Avu says that a person should be brazen like a leopard, light as an eagle, swift as a deer, and mighty as a lion, to do the will of Hashem. So, so he writes that, he, he writes about a deer, right? So one of the things we know about a deer, is that of course deer are very, very fast, right? Very, very quick. They move with alacrity, and of course that's what we're trying to do. He says there's something else about a deer. There's more than just that it's fast. That deer have the ability to, on a dime, switch their modes. They can be eating grass, and they hear a sound, boom, they're off, right? They could be going in one direction, a hunter shoots that direction, they dart the other way. Right? Something that deer have, which is more than the speed of which they, they go from point A to point B, right? If they're running the Kentucky Derby, they'll get around the track very fast, right? But more than that is that they're able to constantly be versatile in adjusting where they are where they are. And so he says, he writes for himself, he says, being like a deer is more than just being fast and more than just not being lazy. It's about being, identifying new spiritual opportunities. And, and even while you're moving fast, being able to, to zigzag and try to, try to take advantage of all of them and not being, even if you're fast, but you're stuck in being fast a particular way, that's not enough. He says, being swift like a deer is being fast, but also being able to, to adjust quickly from, from the, obviously from quiet mode into speed mode, but, but more than that as well. So that's, uh, that's from source 12 in Alacrity, and source uh, 13 is also related to Alacrity, a very, very nice idea. Uh, he says 
that a person whose soul, this is the Messiah Sasharim, Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lazada writes, a person whose soul is on fire in the service of God will not be lazy. He said his movements will be like the quick movements of fire. And he will want to move quickly. He will want to act with zeal um, and, and move fast. So, so he quotes something very nice. He says that we know, how do you say man in Hebrew? Adam, right? Adam was the first man, right? But how do we say um, um, a, uh, a man and a woman? Ish and Isha, right? So Adam, in addition to meaning man, also means Adama, what's Adama? Dirt, earth, right? Remember he said all of us are created from earth, which is the part of us that's, that's uh, physical and moves, doesn't really move, right? But we have the ability to become Ish and Isha. Both of those contain Ish, fire. Aleph Shin is in there, and of course there's all kinds of ideas related to that, but he says that, um, that, that in addition to everything else, um, ish and Isha, each of us have the capability to, to transform ourselves from being Adam, from being uh, uh, lazy and slow and being rooted in the earth, to being like flames which are constantly shooting up and aiming, aiming, for, aiming for great heights. So um, so that was a, uh, that's a, that's a nice idea that he writes in. He reflects for, he has a very nice reflection here for himself um, as well. That was source uh, number 13. So let's uh, look at source 14. Source 14, and this is also related to alacrity. Uh, he says, one of the ways to intensify, to, to, one of the ways to, to light yourself on fire spiritually. How does a person light himself on fire spiritually? To be inflamed spiritually. The way to intensify this, this rousing connection to Hashem is to look at the many benefits that the Holy One, blessed be He, that HaKadosh Baruch Hu does with a person at all moments and the great wonders that God performs for him from the time of his birth until his final day. The more a person looks into and contemplates these things, the more he will recognize the enormous debt to God who bestows good on him. So he says, and this is a reflection he says for himself, he says, if a, if a friend asks me for a favor, uh, he says, you're much more likely to do that favor for him than to a stranger, right? And the reason is that you kind of owe him something. You have this symbiotic relationship. There's a give and take. He does something nice for you. You do something nice for him. And that you're willing to go out of your comfort zone, right? Somebody calls you and says, I'm stuck on the side of the highway two hours away, right? If it's just somebody who's called you cold call, you're probably not going to drive and help them. But if it's a close friend, then you're willing to go out of your comfort zone for a close friend because you appreciate what your friend has done for you. And it's part of a cycle. He says, the key to putting, to lighting your soul on fire, to being in flames, uh, in, inflamed in, the, in, in your connection to Hashem and appreciation for Hashem is to constantly look at all the different ways that Hashem does good for you. Right? Recognizing the goodness, Hakaras Atov is a Jewish value, right, in and of itself thinking about all the different ways that Hashem provides us with goodness, but it's also a, a, a means to arrive at willingness to go out of your comfort zone to do things that Hashem asks from us as well. That's what he writes. And uh, we're going to end with uh, source 15, um, which I, I think at this point we've already gathered something of a picture for, for the type of person Hadar was. Um, the type of uh, introspection that he that he experienced, and this is from um, this is from the um, chap the ninth chapter of Masilas Hasharim. 
He says, a man needs to realize, this is the, uh, the source from Asil Sasharim, that he was not placed in this world for tranquility, but to toil and exertion. He must conduct himself as a laborer who performs work for their employers. Similar to what was said, we are day laborers in the manner of soldiers in their war formations who eat swiftly, sleep irregularly, always ready to engage in battle. And on this, Adar writes, he says, this definition of a, sol- of a Jew being a soldier... Um, resonates with him a lot, obviously, as somebody who, who probably went through some of the most grueling training anybody has ever had um, to be a, the soldier that he was. Uh, he says one of the rules of any army, any military, is that meals should not be too long, sleep should not be too comfortable, because a soldier who gets used to long meals and comfortable sleep um, won't be successful, and the army will lose out on, on such, a, uh, such a soldier. You cannot allow soldiers to become uh, to to develop a habit of optimal conditions when they're on base, right? Because, of course, when they're in battle, at the when the time comes to uh, to actually test their metal and see if they're capable of fighting, and they don't have those comfortable beds and they're sleeping in a tent with mosquitoes and it's 110 degrees outside, they're not going to be able to perform in the optimal way. And he says, the, op, right, the enemy of a successful soldier is rest and enjoying the physical world. If you invest in these kinds of things, you're going to become, uh, you're going to become them. They're going to be actually the, the goal in life instead of simply being food and sleep. They're supposed to be a means to an end. And uh, in, the, in this part, actually, if, if, if anybody were to ever get a copy, and I, I actually spoke to Corin, they're thinking of translating it, which is amazing, but the way they write it is that parts of it are his own notes, and, and this blue script writing is, is his personal reflection. So he writes his personal reflection to himself. He says, excess, excess of physical tra- pleasure, he says, there's no time for this. This is not why you're in this world. He says, we have to remember that we are soldiers and we have a mission. We have the kingdom of Hashem. Hashem is called Hashem Tzvakos the Lord of hosts, of, of armies, right? And he says it's more than the fact that he rules over the world, which has 7 billion people, right? He says Hashem is the king of the world, and we, are, we belong to him, we're his soldiers. Um, and our model for this are the angels, who are models of swiftness. They do exactly what he says. And he writes, he writes, He says, I have to be ready, and I have to be prepared at any moment, training myself not to look for uh, physical pleasure, on the contrary, to look for opportunities to push myself and exert myself uh, to, be, to be uncomfortable, to know constantly what the end game is, and then when you know that, he says, ironically, actually everything will be easier once you encounter the real purpose of life. So this is only in chapter 9, and he does continue with notes for several more chapters, but I think this is a very uh, uh, um, um, important way of, of summarizing everything, everything. The first half of this talk we talked a little bit about who he was as a soldier and the, and the story of how he was taken captive and the tragedy that remained the, the, the criminal behavior of Hamas today, which is still holding on to his body, um, which is a horrible humanitarian uh, situation. And hopefully, uh, uh, please God, the, uh, the Israeli government will be able to secure his body soon so that whatever remains are in Gaza will be able to join the rest of his uh, body and his family can have complete closure. I'm on this along with uh, Aron Shaul, but we find here a person who is not just a soldier in the IDF and is not holy simply because he got killed because he was a Jew defending Jews, but was clearly a person who lived a holy life up until age 23, died way too young, 
and um, pushed himself to be a soldier of Hashem as well. So may his memory be a blessing, um, and uh, may his merit protect us all and uh, bring peace to the Jewish people. Thank you.